Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. You're listening to part three of my chat with retired Colonel Len Wassell of the British Royal Military Police. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, I strongly recommend you pause this episode and listen to those first. In this final episode, Colonel Wassell and I talk about the evolution of body-worn cameras, devices which weren't issued a standard kit to most units, and the challenges they presented to the British Army when incidents occurred on the battlefield. All this and more, next on Protect and Serve. Often when we reflect on those two conflicts, um, and I think the ramifications of those are still felt fairly deep amongst families, A, for the reasons of why we were there, which is, a, is another podcast in itself probably, but importantly, I suppose what we all remember is those very sort of humbling and saddening moments when you see an individual, be a ceremonial, at either Camp Bastion being loaded onto the back of a C-170 or a Globemaster, um, quite moving moments. And, and for us not realising that behind that ceremony there is this intensive machine of investigations going on in the background to make sure that the repatriation back to loved ones is as quickly and smoothly as possible and importantly, getting them the answers that they need to understand what had happened. Which moves me on to my next question. I think to some advantage and also to some detriment, the evolution of body-worn cameras has become a big thing in the theatre of war and soldiers wearing these body-worn cameras. Did they assist you 
in your investigations, obviously to understand how things occurred, um, but also capturing footage at times of of actions of stuff which was slightly concerning. And uh, there's clearly some well-documented cases of body-worn cameras showing allegations of individuals acting unethically overseas. But how did the evolution of body-worn cameras help you in your investigative work? Well, body-worn cameras were never part of a soldier's equipment. These were cameras taken by individuals um, and in, into theatres, and, and they did their own recording. This stunning helmet cam footage shows members of B Company, the One Mercians, lying pinned down in an open field. Engage, soldier! Enemy dead! Enemy dead! It was at me! Get back down here, get back! They're firing in that direction over there! Filmed by one of his own men, the death of a British officer in Afghanistan. News has obtained video from a helmet camera of the day he was killed. The MOD says an inquest yeah. fully investigated what happened. They are firing straight down the road, it just hit the wall. The wall. They, they weren't part. You know, at the high end of intensity special forces end, you may have that kind of digital feed that you're talking about. But in the routine, uh, I see, you know, you know, the, the, the hard edge frontline units, there was no, you know, body cams weren't deployed. They, they, they weren't deployed. It, if you think about the amount of equipment, the body armor, the amount of ammunition that they needed to carry to sustain themselves in that, a body worn camera is just an, an additional piece of kit, which is, uh, you know, going to get in the way and whatever. So it was never an officially. Uh, in, in those senses, it wasn't part of the official equipment. But individuals did take body cams in. And of course, if they record what goes on, then of course it's it's the best evidence because you can't deny what you're seeing. Mm. You know, it, it's being being recorded. I mean, in policing, we've rolled out body-worn cameras across policing and across the security industry where we're working, where I'm working now. It's you body-worn cameras are becoming the norm. I, I was in, I was in uh, Sainsbury's the other day. The cashier has got a body-worn camera on, you know, at, 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 the, at the petrol station, um, wow. because it's become such a norm to do that. So, but anyway, no, the, these body-worn cameras that in, in, in that context were never issued. They were, they were taken by individuals uh, and there was, it, it was, it was no control or anything over the footage. Interested to get your opinion on this to to the extent you can do. We send our men and women, soldiers, um, into war uh, to fight, to kill the enemy, to deal with threats and to return an environment back to a safe one for people to live, work and do business in. At the height of war, when we have our soldiers involved in these conflicts, 
Do you think we do you think in terms of these body worn cameras and allegations have come out in terms of soldiers uh, acting inappropriately in committing allegations of war crimes in the field of battle and, and obviously the, breaching the rules of engagement and some of this evidence being captured on body worn cameras? Do you think we've looked after enough the mental health? Because we've talked throughout this podcast about from an investigator's perspective, not being, you know, not having the right framework around to support you around mental health. And this podcast particularly focuses on ordinary people doing extraordinary work. Now, doing investigations in a war zone is incredible, but equally the people that are engaged in the theatre of war on the front lines are equally doing extraordinary work. Do you think we support them enough in terms of mental health? And and when you see some of these fallouts around body-worn cameras and the actions of individuals, or does it come back to the strength of leadership supporting people through these issues? It must be understood that uh, that our armed forces, particularly the Army and the the Royal Marines, we're trained from day one. It's in our DNA, the the Geneva Convention, you know, all of the rules of war. We, it is drilled into you from day one. It's in your DNA. By the time you hit the ground running, even as a private soldier in, a, you know, in an infantry section, you know the rules of war. You know what you can and cannot do. Um, those rules of war have been honed and refined through some of the most horrific parts of history in, in Europe, particularly. So, And that's what we're governed by. And part of the training of deployment the rules of the law of armed conflict, the laws of armed conflict, because it's not just one, it's just not just not the Geneva Convention, the you know, the, 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 the human rights conventions, everything else, all play a part in this. So that's the framework in which you operate. So when people step outside of that framework, they should be investigated. And the proper people to do that investigation are the service police on the ground. That the whole reason that the Army, Navy and Air Force have a police force is because they are lawfully required to be able to police their force when they deploy them. So that you're not sending ravaging hordes. You know, there's not the Vikings landing in northern England, you know, you know, back in the day. There is, you know, it, there's a framework in place. So, but going on to the mental health of, of, of individuals, you know, war is, war is traumatic, you know, the, the, in, the, in the most unreal sense. Um, seeing what you see, experiencing what you experience, you can't unsee those things. You know, th- there are things that I've seen in my military policing career I cannot unsee that are still with me. Um, but you get... You, you, you know, you, you, you can't use, if someone has fallen down because of their mental health, it should have been picked up. But it wasn't because we, we involve our service personnel are incredibly robust. They are robust people. You know, but there's a scale of robustness. Some people can take that robustness, others can't. Um, so it, it's... But you can't use that as an excuse. If you breach the rules of common, you know, the, the, the rules of conflict and you are seen, to, you know, the evidence is there, then you should be held accountable for that. You know, there may be mitigating factors as there are with everything else, but the basic fact is, you know, you know, these individuals are responsible for their own actions. 
You know, it's you can't use the Nuremberg defense as I was only following orders. There are, you know, there is a point where you've got to follow orders and you've got to go and do what you've got to do. And our infantry, their their mission is to to engage, to close with and kill the enemy. It's it, it's that's as simple a mission as you could give an infantryman. Uh, because that's what we require them to do. But in requiring them to do that, we do that within an international legal framework that means that they deploy and they do that and their actions are justifiable. At the rank of colonel uh, and as the deputy provost marshal, um, what were your greatest challenges? Um I, I've been working, I, I've been fortunate enough to, 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 to be worked with the Homicide Working Group, uh, ACPO's Homicide Working Group, which is, was, was led by um, Chief Constable Durham at the time, John Stoddart. And, and I worked with some of the most incredible uh, and, and, and helped shape some of the policies and, and the work that we did with, with, with that. Um, I mean, that's where I met Roy McComb. Who you uh, who you interviewed very recently, and I was talking to only last week. Um, so I was working there. One of the challenges that I had was explaining what we've been talking about today to UK policing. You are not alone in this. We have a role. We have a responsibility. There is an entire part of the UK justice system which looks after the military. It is part of our UK justice system. The laws. The, you know, the, the, the Armed Forces Act and the Army Act, Navy and Air Force Acts as before it are the same as the Police Act. They give powers to, to our police. So getting them to understand and, and removing the ignorance, because there was a stereotype. Military police were six foot four, six foot four thugs that, that walk around beating up squaddies who, who get a bit lippy. Now, don't get me wrong, there was a time when that was probably, you know, considerably more accurate. But by this stage, no, we're a highly professional force. So that, that was the first challenge. We were also engaged in um, allegations of war crimes by, against the, uh, our forces in Iraq. Um, and for the first time, there was a twin, twin track approach. There was the criminal investigations that we were trying to conduct but there was a whole civil litigation process going on against the MOD um, um, generated by public interest lawyers and, and a gentleman called Mr. Shiner. So we were having to, trying to conduct investigations. And, and when I was commanding the SIB in the UK, we were given the first allegations, which were 72 separate cases of abuse or, you know, which included uh, murder and rape. Um, so you've got 72 potentially separate crimes. So I set up a major incident team under an SIO, a, a UK trained SIO, set, set them up with a Holmes incident room and we began that investigation. Uh, we still had our troops in Iraq, so we were able to conduct some investigations in Iraq at the time. But there was a real conflict between the civil process and the criminal process because of the differences in disclosure. Uh, and also there was a reticence from particularly public interest lawyers to provide us with any real evidence or information. It's interesting you talk about um, Phil Shiner because you look at those allegations which he brought forward. Now, Phil Shiner, as he knows, is a human rights 
lawyer. But, you know, the findings against him, the tribunal found him guilty of multiple professional misconduct charges, including dishonesty and a lack of integrity. 22 misconduct charges were proved to the criminal standard of beyond reasonable doubt. Two other charges were left to lie on file. So not only were you investigating or having these allegations brought to you, it sounds to me like those some of those allegations were not even could not even be proven and would seem to have been come from this sort of mystical world that Mr. Shiner had almost developed himself. Is that is that accurate? Well, what what you what we were experiencing here was that because the allegations were being made by a lawyer, a solicitor in this case, that everyone believed them to be true, because why would a solicitor lie? Well, you know, the the, the the, the SRA itself found that and struck him off. So, but but there was a tacit tacit acceptance. Now, every SIO worth their salt is trained in the very basics of ABC. Assume nothing, believe nothing, challenge everything. And mm. that's the process we were engaged in that we were thwarted, for, particularly by, by people who just refused to give us any information. We couldn't verify what they were saying. Um, but they were sufficiently agile in the legal environment to be able to literally outmaneuver the MOD. I mean, and I witnessed that. I watched them outmaneuver the MOD. Um, and it, it, the part of that failure by the MOD was that the lawyers couldn't get their head around, from my perspective, they could not get their head around. In fact, some of this might not be true because it was being accepted. It's a lawyer saying it. It has to be true. One area, so one area that's always intrigued me, and there's been a, probably one of the biggest advocates this at the, at the parliamentary level, Johnny Mercer, who was the former Veterans Affairs Minister. He sat in that post twice in the Johnson and I think the Theresa May government. I might be wrong on that, but it might be, I think I'm right. What's your view on historical allegations against soldiers dating back to the 70s and 80s in Northern Ireland being held accountable for um, alleged war crimes. Is there a point where we say that we sent these individuals into battle a long, long time ago? Uh, We're judging them now by today's standards in 2022, which are significantly different to the standards of the 70s and 80s. I think we'd all agree upon that. Do you think there's a line in the sand where we say, listen, I think we've got to move on here because we're not pursuing IRA terrorists and holding them accountable. We seem to be trying to hold our soldiers accountable for actions way back then. Is is there a line in the sand that we should say enough is enough? Well, I think Johnny Mercer, he was always an advocate for legislating to give our troops legal protections that when they are deployed. What, what I would advocate is that there should be that legal protection, but then... If there is an allegation of misconduct, the correct place for that to be judged is in the uh, is in the, the, the military court system, because they can be judged by people who know what they should have been doing and, and, and the likes. I would never advocate no one being accountable. Um, the, the, there is a problem. I mean, I, I've seen it in the Iraq investigations and, and um, from, from my understanding of what's going on in Northern Ireland, that the reason that that people will pursue troops is that the government forces or the, the or the or the state forces involved in this keep records the non 
aligned state forces don't keep records. So that when an investigation has to take place, the, the only people, the only place that actually these investigations, the Northern Ireland HET and the IHAT in its time could go was, was our own service records, which naturally means that they will focus on the conduct of service personnel rather than the conduct of others. Is that fair? Inherently not, but it does mean that if we've done what we should have done at the time, the record will be there. Now, um, the, the, the efficacy or even the fairness of, of the trials that's about to recommence in Northern Ireland, isn't it, you know, that's about to recommence. So it, it, I, I, no one should be commenting on that because it has to take place in an air of fairness. Um, the, uh, the, the fact remains people were killed during that day and it's unclear who did that and they're trying to get to that and, and that, that, I can, that, that I can go along with. What, what happened with the Iraq cases is because of the way legislation was introduced, it left our troops exposed under the Human Rights Act. Um, and when I say exposed, they didn't receive the same legal protections as everybody else. So they were coming in. And that, that, that was the angle that enabled people like Shiner to come in and do what he did. Um, and, and, you know, to pursue for damages, but also, you know, there was probably some political activity going along in the background, because I know that there was a lot of, lot of pressure to acquire legal advice given to the then government around, around the Iraq war. Um, and so it's not just one simple phrase. There's lots of actions in play there. I lived through that and saw those processes going through and have my own views on those, some of which I've exposed here. But ostensibly, from a military policing point of view, you're there on the ground to do what you're there to do and to provide that framework and to make sure that the First of all, prevent crime happening if you can do that. Mm. But if it does happen, investigate it properly so that our troops and our personnel are protected by the UK laws and are held accountable in a fair and just way. It's been a remarkable um, just over an hour that we've been talking. It's, um, I suppose, rounding up. You, you retired in November 2014 after 38 years of of military service, retiring as a full colonel. Um, I say uh, in most of my podcasts that behind um, every amazing man and woman, there is an amazing partner supportive. You've obviously got an incredibly supportive wife and family that have traveled around the world with you in terms of supporting your career and, and your achievements to date. Um, what's uh, a post-military policing life look like for Len now? Obviously, I'm, I'm incredibly privileged to be working alongside you already on projects in Asia. What else are you up to in a post-military career? Um, I've gone into the commercial world um, and, um, and, and worked in a financial institution delivering uh, you know, investigation capability there. Um, I provided security advice and... Um, sometimes simple as things as just helping companies write policies. Uh, I've done some training into, you know, delivered RIPA training to uh, local authorities. Um, 
And um, you know, I'm currently working with a company, um, providing them with a investigative framework which supports the business. So it's taking what I've done for for decades, uh, sadly, what I've done for decades, and um, move, using those skills in a commercial sense. Um, to, to, to help businesses go along. Obviously, it's a business for myself as well. So, um, but, but taking everything I've known and, and learned and, and taking the very best bits of that, one of the things I have learned since, since leaving the military, what you, once you come outside that very formulaic framework of the law, so you have mm. a compelability element, you, you've got to adapt pretty rapidly. And, and perhaps I didn't adapt as quickly as I should have done initially, but... I have since been able to evolve and adapt that into what my own son describes as a more corporate approach to uh, to, to to life. Um, I've I've learned not to get too excited about things, um, mm -hmm. um, but the variety of the work that I've got got involved in is uh, is phenomenal, and and you know the, the organisations I've been able to work with and the companies I've been able to work with. All have taught me something. It, it's always, it, for me, it's always an exchange. So it's part of the learning process. And I've always said to the teams that I've set up and worked with is, you know, every day is a school day. And if you don't, you know, if you don't learn as you go along, then you become irrelevant. So, um, and not being relevant, particularly in the field that we work in, um, if, if, you, if you can't identify what is relevant and what's important to the customer and the client um, whilst maintaining your own personal integrity and the integrity of what you do because that's what we trade on is integrity so you know our integrity our confidentiality and things like that in the commercial sense are highly valued um, and it's something that you know and, and we have to quote Liam Neeson, we have particular skill sets which other people do not have, <laughs> and we will find yeah. you. Um, not necessarily go on to the next part of his of his phrase, but uh, uh, but we will find find out for our customers what they need to find out, and and that that for me is brilliant, and and it's the variety which you know you know it, it, it keeps 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 me coming back every day. Well, it's been a fantastic, it's been a fascinating insight into your life in the Royal Military Police. Uh, it's been incredible to find out that there are other policing organisations which I think people need to know about and the work that you do. So I think I wanted to close by saying thank you ever so much for your service on behalf of my team here at the Protect and Serve podcast. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we certainly wish you all the best in your post-military policing life. Thank you. Thanks, Ollie. It's been a great pleasure. The Protect and Serve podcast wishes to stop and pause to remember those that have made the ultimate sacrifice during conflicts all over the world. The legacy of heroes, the memory of a great name and the inheritance of a great example. As we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. No duty is more urgent than that of returning thanks. May we never forget our fallen comrades. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. 
hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.